Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show... Stool in Wickfield's office, thoughtfully cracking his knuckles as David comes in. You're working late tonight, Uriah? Yes, Master Copperfield, I am. I am improving my legal knowledge, Master Copperfield. I'm going through Tid's practice. Oh, what a writer Mr. Tid is, Master Copperfield. I suppose you're quite a great lawyer. Me, Master Copperfield? Oh, no. I'm a very humble person. I'm well aware that I am the humblest person going. Let the other person be where he may. My mother is likewise a very humble person. We live in a humble abode, Master Copperfield, but have much to be thankful for. My father's former calling was humble. He's a partaker of glory at present, Master Copperfield. But we have much to be thankful for. I wish you'd call me Uriah, if you please. It's like old times. Well, Uriah. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Master Copperfield. It's like the blowing of old breezes or the ringing of old bellses to hear you say Uriah. And that was Jim Clark as the voice of Charles Dickens in a reading of David Copperfield about Uriah Heep described by Dickens back then as dishonest, cruel, greedy, and, quote, a monster in the garb of a man, and the name as well adopted by the English classic rock band Uriah Heep. And here to unlock the mystery of all that and why is Uriah Heep's guitarist Mick Box and his latest music coming up. But first, Pacifica host and contributor to the show Garland Nixon on anti-imperialism and the U.S. rules-based order. What is it? The victims and who benefits? And for example, you know what the rules-based order is called in Latin America? It's called the Monroe Doctrine. Good evening. My name is Garland Nixon. Um, having a good time and having fun. I'm going to uh, cover lots of stuff today, and I cover foreign policy from the perspective of, and I, this is what I consider myself, an anti-imperialist. What does that mean? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Because, you know, as you probably know, listen to the show, I'm a person who studies the philosophy of Zen. In fact, I would if there were some if there were something to study and there were someone to study it, which there isn't. And if you understand Zen, that'll make sense to you. But at any rate, um, but when I say I'm an anti-imperialist, I, I, I like to put it like this. When it comes to worldwide geopolitics, what I believe in is justice. Justice. I believe in that all um, countries, all people, all entities, all groups should have the same expectation in, of rights. What I do not believe in in fact, what I abhor, in fact, what I think needs to be fought against worldwide is what Tony Blinken calls the rules-based order and what I call imperialism. He calls it the U.S.-led rules-based order. The U.S.-led, you'll notice that U.S.-led rules-based order. And he says that we've got to maintain the U.S.-led rules-based order. And in, from my interpretation, what that mean is, means is we must impose an order on the world in which the U.S. is the leadership. Now, the problem is the Africans don't like that. You know why? Because it ain't worked out well for them. The Middle Easters don't work like that. Their countries get bombed and their, and, their, and their resources get stolen. The Latin Americans don't like that. You know what the rules-based order is called in Latin America? It's called the Monroe Doctrine. All the Monroe Doctrine means is U.S. imperialism. The United States is in total control of the Western Hemisphere. And no one, no other country can come and make any inroads can have any military bases, can do anything anywhere in South America or its war. 
Now, don't get me wrong. The United States maintains that we can go to the border of Russia and pump all the weapons we want into Ukraine, that we can pay, the, as we do right now, that we can pay the salaries of every politician. We pay the pensions of every person in Ukraine. We maintain that the, the Ukraine is nothing but a country. It is a total and absolute welfare state of the United States. And we just pump weapons in there to fight, fight, fight Russia. But we can do that. The United States maintains that the island of Taiwan off the coast of China, which the U.S. recognizes as a part of China, that we can pump weapons in, in there all we want to. We can get all the what are you kidding? Independent. We can do whatever we want on the border of Russia. We can do everything we want on, on the border of China. But the United States says we maintain the Monroe Doctrine, which means that no country can maintain any kind of a military presence, barely a diplomatic presence, anywhere in South America, anywhere. In other words, the Monroe Doctrine means that there is no independence and there is no sovereignty in the United States. If Argentina, if Brazil says, you know, we've decided we want to host a base for any country, Iran, the U.S. says we'll go to war. If Brazil says, hey, we're going to host a base for whatever country we choose, China, Russia, we'll go to war. You don't have that authority. The United States says, no, you can't do that. The United States is in charge. We have the Monroe Doctrine. No one can do anything we do not say in uh, the, the, Brazil, Argentina, Nicaragua. You countries do not have independence. You do not have sovereignty. That is the Monroe Doctrine. You do not have independence and sovereignty. You are controlled by the United States, and we will decide your foreign policy. And you will not have an alliance with anyone else anywhere in our hemisphere, not in the Caribbean, none of the Caribbean countries, forget it. Haiti ain't happening. Any, no, the United States is in total control of all of those countries, and none of those countries are allowed to have a military alliance with anyone in the world. No independence for them, no sovereignty to them. Now, Ukraine's on the border of Russia. We can do anything we want. Uh, uh, Taiwan's on the border of China. In fact, it's part of China. We can do anything we want. You see, Garland Nixon is an anti-imperialist. I don't believe in those kinds of unfair rules. That is simply narcissism. That says I can do what I want because I'm special. We're an exceptional country. We can do whatever we want. We have bases all over Africa. The Africans don't have a say in it. We got it there. If the Africans don't like it, too bad. They can't stop us. We got them. We call it AFRICOM, Africa Command. We got bases all over South America. We call it South Command. Hey, you know what? Southern Command, they don't have a choice. We have them there. Don't want to hear it. You do not have independence and sovereignty. The United States says what who, what, what happens and, and when, right? The United States says we are in charge of this planet. And you do not have any option to say no, right? So when I say I'm an anti-imperialist, I, what I'm saying is I do not believe in that. I believe that every country should have a right. Every country should have the same expectation of rights. Just because the United States has more money in a bigger military doesn't mean we should have a greater expectation of rights. Internally, because someone has more money doesn't mean they should have a greater expectation of rights than a poor person. You see what I mean? So what I'm saying is, here's what I believe in. Make it simple. A system of universal rights as opposed to a system of hierarchical rights. Universal rights. Everyone has the same expectation of rights. Universal rights across the planet. Every country has an equal expectation of independence, an equal expectation of sovereignty. If the Brazilians or the Nicaraguans or the Venezuelans wish to do whatever they want to do, if they want to host a base by somebody, any country in the world or not, it's their independent country and, and their sovereign nation and they should be able to do it. But the U.S. says, no, if you try that, we will go to war. Okay, it is what it is. But what the United States doesn't say is that everybody can do that. Only we can do it. Russia can't do it. China can't do it. Iran can't do it. Nobody can do it. Nobody can do it but us. I, I, am I wrong for opposing that? And I look at uh, geopolitics through the context of history, right, and through the context of fairness. I don't think we should be able to take a position that we th say other people can't take. So let's do this. Let, I'm going to do a comparison. 
right now. <clears throat> Reuters. U.S. President Joe Biden in a call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Thursday, and this is December 9th, 2021, spoke about the United States, listen to this, unwavering commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity and said diplomacy was the best way to. So we are unwaveringly committed to your sovereignty and territorial integrity. Now, if you understand history, you know that the United States overthrew the government of Ukraine, so how can they be sovereign when we overthrew the government? But that's a whole other story. We don't even have to get into that. That's a history of 2014. That's easily provable. So my position already with Ukraine is how can you overthrow the government of a country, install a puppet government, and then, then after that argue that the country is sovereign? It would be sovereign if you hadn't overthrown the government and installed the puppet government. Those two things are contradictory. That's a contradiction. We overthrew your government. We installed the puppet government. And now we're going to argue that you are an independent and sovereign government. Those things contradict each other. I don't know any way to make those two things meet. I'm going somewhere with this. So uh, one of the... uh, Things that are in the news, new attack against U.S. base in Syria after alleged drone kills American contract drawing airstrikes. Okay, so the mainstream media, which I so despise in the United States, the mainstream media is saying that there is a U.S. base, military base in Syria, and that um, that base was attacked by missiles, that the United States then attacked some People, some military people, they say Iran-backed militias. I don't know who it is or what it means, but they suspected those people maybe of attacking them. I don't know. But so they launched airstrikes in retaliation, right? And the discussion is about that. Well, the U.S. contractor was killed. U.S. people, so service members were injured, and the U.S. is retaliating in Syria. But one of the things that isn't asked by mainstream media is, and i got to ask this question, what the hell is the United States doing with the base in Syria? Did the Syrian government ask us to do that? Did they say, will you please come into Syria and occupy? Let's look at a consortium news story, October 24, 2419. U.S. troops staying in Syria to keep the oil have already killed hundreds, right? And if you go down a little bit, now for the first, okay, where are we? The Washington Post noted in 2018 that the U.S. and its Kurdish allies were military, uh, militarily occupying a massive 30% slice of Syria, which is probably where 90% of the pre-war oil takes place. Now, for the first time at the time Trump was, uh, was the president, Trump has openly confirmed the imperialist ulterior motives behind maintaining a U.S. military presence in Syria. We want to keep the oil, Trump confessed in a cabinet meeting on October 21. Maybe we'll have one of our big oil companies go in and do it properly. Three days earlier, the president tweeted, the U.S. has secured the oil, right? The New York Times confirmed the strategy on October 20th, citing a senior administration official. The newspaper reported, quote, President Trump is leaning in favor of a new Pentagon plan to keep a small contingent of American troops in eastern Syria, perhaps numbering about 200, a lot more to combat the Islamic State and block the advance of Syrian government and Russian forces into the region's coveted oil fields. Then Trump explicitly reiterated his policy in a White House press briefing on the Syria withdrawal on October 23. Quote, this is Trump. We've secured the oil in Syria, and therefore a small number of troops will remain in the area where they have the oil, Trump said, and we're going to be protecting it, and we'll be deciding what we're going to do with it in the future. So uh, President uh, Biden gets elected. Here's Newsweek. Syria has issued its first message to President Joe Biden, urging the incoming U.S. leader to withdraw troops from the war-torn nation and to abandon efforts to tap into the country's oil reserves. Wait, here's an article from just last week. China has called on the United States to stop plundering the natural resources in Syria and withdraw its military forces from the country. Quote, We call on the United States to sincerely respect the sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity of other countries and to immediately stop its illegal military presence and marauding in Syria, Chinese Forest Minister Mao Ying told a news briefing on Friday. Right? Uh, September 20th. The United States is defending 
its policy in Syria amid heated criticism with the State Department calling for the removal of Iranian and Iran-backed forces, but not a Russian withdrawal. And the article is, U.S. says Iran must leave Syria, Russia can stay, but allies keep the oil. So what's going on here? The United States occupies one-third of Syria, the third where the oil fields are. And Donald Trump said, look, we're taking the oil, we're securing the oil, we're keeping the oil. And as soon as President Biden came in, Syria sends its first message to President Biden. This is in Newsweek. Withdraw troops, stop stealing the oil. So, I'm watching the news, and the news is saying the United States bases in Syria were attacked, and the, and the United States is retaliating by bombing Iranian-backed whoever. But what they're saying is the United States is illegally occupying a third of Syria, the third with the oil fields. And the legitimate Syrian government has said to the United States, Get out and stop stealing our oil. The Chinese have said to the government, get out and stop stealing their oil. I'm saying, and I'm just a schmuck on a radio show, can we get out and stop stealing their oil? Oh, let, wait, perhaps I should read something again. Let me read this. U.S. President Joe Biden, in a call with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky on Thursday, spoke about the United States' unwavering commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. You see, what I'm bringing up to you, my friends, is why I oppose imperialism. Why I oppose it is because the inherent contradictions and narcissistic nature of imperialism. I can do what I want, wherever I want. Why can the United States occupy one-third of Syria when the Syrian government says, get out? Why can the United States plunder the oil from Syria, steal the oil from Syria? When the, when, the, when, the, when the Syrian government says, get out of our country and stop stealing our oil. When the evil Chinese, oh, the Chinese are terrible, they must be stopped. And what are the Chinese saying? Hey, guys, would you get out of their country and stop stealing their oil? For some reason, that doesn't sound evil to me. And I'm saying, can we get out of their country and stop stealing our, their oil? See, I got to say this. That's why I don't, ain't a member of either one of these parties. Because I can't separate that. I can't say the Democrats are good and the Republicans are evil. Because I can't separate them. Because you only separate them with words. Do you hear anyone in the Democratic Party asking the question? When, when they say we just bombed some people in Syria in retaliation for attack on our base, do you hear anybody in the Democratic Party saying, why do we have a base in Syria? When the government of Syria told us to leave, I thought we said to Ukraine that we were concerned with, we were committed to the territorial integrity, independence, and sovereignty of, na of other nations, but, but not Syria. Those two things contradict each other. Do you hear anybody in the Democratic Party saying that? Do you hear anybody in the Republican Party saying that? You see, that's what the Syrians know. The Syrians are not sitting there saying, yes, sir. People who push those, those um, kinds of um, arguments, in my opinion, are imperialist and, and to some extent lunatics. They're madmen. They're, they're narcissists and sociopaths. And there's a problem in a country. There are people listening right now to disagreement with me on a lot of things. But logically speaking, can you dispute what I just said? So how can you look at me and say, it's okay if the United States does that? Unacceptable. Unacceptable. And that's why Contrary to what Western media says, not one African country is on the side of the United States in the Russia conflict. Not one Middle Eastern country is on the side of the United States. Not one Latin American country, not even Mexico, is on the side of the United States. In the brown and black world, you ain't going to find nobody that says, hey, I'm down with the United States. Ain't happening. The only black folks that you're going to find 
on the side of the United States, unfortunately, is the one who have been imperialized and culturalized by the United States to support the United States in that kind of unjust. Un, it's Stockholm syndrome. They're so accustomed to what to, to getting that kind of injustice and untreatment and, 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 and wrong treatment that they're willing to let it to, to 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 support the United States doing it around the world. Go to Africa and find me somebody that says, oh, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Go ahead. Treat us any kind. No, because they've had a taste of it for the last four or five centuries and they had enough. And coming up next on Arts Express. What about NPR's uproar over being officially labeled on Twitter as state-affiliated media? And just changed since then, following Biden's and their own uproar to government-funded media, a designation they now share with the BBC in their own uproar about that. Here is political analyst and self-described digital street philosopher Caitlin Johnstone shedding light on the matter and presented by Tim Foley. For the record, NPR absolutely is U.S. state propaganda. American liberals are in an uproar over Twitter's recent labeling of national public radio as U.S. state-affiliated media, a designation typically reserved for state media from governments the U.S. is trying to topple, like Russia's RT, China's CGTN, and Iran's Press TV. In an article titled, Twitter Labels NPR's Account as State-Affiliated Media, which is untrue, NPR's Bill Chappelle attempts to argue that his outlet does not deserve to have the same labels affixed to it as state media from naughty governments like Russia and China. Quote, Noting the millions of listeners who support and rely upon NPR for independent fact-based journalism, NPR CEO John Lansig stated, NPR stands for freedom of speech and holding the powerful accountable. It is unacceptable for Twitter to label us in this way. A vigorous, vibrant free press is essential to the health of our democracy. End quote. It is an interesting choice to spotlight NPR's CEO John Lansing while trying to argue that NPR is not state-affiliated. Given that Lansing spent his pre-NPR years as the CEO of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, USAGM. USAGM is the U.S. government narrative management umbrella which runs overt U.S. state propaganda outlets like Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and Voice of America. In a 1977 article titled Worldwide Propaganda Network, built by the CIA, the New York Times explicitly names Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe, and Radio Free Asia as part of the network constructed by the Central Intelligence Agency to circulate propaganda. As FAIR.org's Bryce Green recently noted, USAGM received $810 million in U.S. federal funding in 2022, which is more than twice the amount RT received from Russia for its global operations in 2021. Lansing's history is not an anomaly. NPR is regularly overseen by executives who came directly from senior positions in Washington's official propaganda network. From 1998 to 2008, NPR's president was a man named Kevin Close, who previously ran Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and then returned to that job after his decade-long NPR stint. A man named Ken Stern became NPR's executive vice president in 1999 and was appointed CEO in 2006. Prior to that, he was the senior advisor to the director of the USAGM's International Broadcasting Bureau. So it is a bit funny that John Lansing is now cited complaining about NPR being labeled state-affiliated media on Twitter, given that he has devoted his life to promulgating U.S. state-affiliated media. NPR receives funding from the U.S. government, consistently advocates the information interests of the U.S. government, and is routinely run by professional propagandists of the U.S. government. You could spend hours of your life reading through FAIR.org's NPR section to see the many, many ways that platform has exhibited wild biases to grease the wheels of the U.S. empire. If NPR is not state-affiliated media, then nobody is. In his efforts to argue that his outlet is not state-affiliated media, Bill Chappelle also hilariously points out that White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre defended NPR as a wonderful exemplar of journalistic integrity. 
Quote, when asked about Twitter's decision during the White House's daily briefing, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre declined to address Twitter's content rules specifically, but she also defended NPR's journalism. There is no doubt of the independence of NPR journalists, Jean-Pierre said. If you've ever been on the receiving end of their questions, you know this, end quote. Yeah, great argument, Bill. The White House says we're good, so we can't possibly be U.S. state-affiliated media. And you can see more of Caitlin Johnstone's work, daily writings about the end of illusions, at CaitlinJohnstone.com. John Savage, if you're if you're listening to this right now, you're way ahead of everybody else in the world. This is Arts Express with Barry Miller, and she's had the courage to give a call to me, uh, John Savage, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of what I consider to be one of our most important radio programs and networks we have available in this country today. So hang in there. All right. Arts Express. And the music you've been listening to is British rock band Uriah Heep's Gypsy. And on the line from London to talk about their music now and then, and why they've called themselves Uriah Heep, is the band's guitarist, Mick Box. Hello, Barry. How are you doing? Good morning. Good morning, and welcome to our show. Yeah, well, thank you very much, my love. <laughs> okay. What can you say about chaos and color and the inspirations for that music creatively and politically? Okay, well, um, with Chaos and Colour, I think we'll start with the title. Um, it's the title I gave the album because I thought, you know, it reflected the times that we were going through with, with lockdown and COVID, the pandemic and all that sort of stuff. And I thought that was chaotic, and therefore we used the first word as chaos. And Colour, I, I believe that um, one of the the um, things that got people through all those difficult times was, was music. So music is the colour, so we called it Chaos and Colour. Now, it's a typical Heap album. It um, encompasses all the trademarks we've had in our 53 years of existence. 
And, um, you know, we've got the ballad there, we've got the rock song, the metal song, the progressive rock song, the eight-minute songs. So it kind of carries everything that we that we do in one beautiful package. <laughs> and please say a little about the origins of your band's name, Uriah Heep, and both the character and Charles Dickens as inspiration. Well, we were um, a band called Spice was a four-piece when we went into the studio to record our first album, Very Heavy, Very Humble. And um, when when we were listening back to the tracks through the speakers, I I felt that we, we, we needed to embellish some of those tracks with some keyboards. We tried some keyboards out, and then I was a big fan at the time of um, Vanilla Fudge with Mark Stein, um, who, who was um, a really great exponent of playing the Hammond organ, and I thought the Hammond organ would really fit into every nuance and genre of, of music that we were producing at the time. And um, so we got in a keyboard player called Ken Hensley, and he came along. And then once we changed the musical template, um, we decided to change the name of the band. And um, it just happened to be the 100th birthday of Charles Dickens in 1970. And um, there was a lot of um, advertisement going on, as you can imagine, on buses and and TV shows and films and things. And our, our manager took um, his two sons to see... Um, David Copperfield, a film adaption of, of, of his wonderful novel, and within that novel, there's that horrible character called Uriah Heep, and he came back, mm-hmm. suggested the name, and we thought, well, yeah, well, you know, um, it's a bit of a nasty character, but nevertheless, you know, at least it's a character from Charles Dickens, and how, how good is that? So, yeah, we took the name on board. Mm. Now, you've been critical of the way the contemporary emphasis of music videos and the visual has precipitated something potentially lost about the music and the power of music. Please elaborate. I just felt that um, I think music has the ability or, or certain lyrics have the ability to to touch people in different ways, you know, and um, I think that when the blockbuster videos came out, especially in the 80s, um, I think they just took away people's imagination because they created such a, a firm image on where the song was going that you know nobody had time to think (laughs) so i was kind of um a bit anti that to be honest (laughs) and how would you say chaos and color connects to both the uh, traditional elder listeners and younger listeners i think it connects very well because um you know although we're very proud of our heritage we've always moved forward with new products new albums you know We've had 25 albums in 53 years, so it's nearly um, uh, an album every two years. So that's pretty good going. So um, I think it connects very well with with um, our older audience and and the and the younger audience, like you said, because um, you know it, it's 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 very true to our heritage, chaos and colour, but it's also very fresh, exciting, and today. And I wanted to ask you, please talk a little about what's going on in the UK right now with the economic crisis and protests and struggles connected to the cost of heating and medical issues for the British masses? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the world is in turmoil at the moment, isn't it, coming off the back end of, um, of the pandemic. And um, I think, you know, the UK is no different to anybody else, in, you know, anywhere else in the world, you know. Um, at the moment, in terms of, um, you know, countries that are settled, it's just, it's um, Russia and Ukraine with that, obviously. But, you know, I think, I think we're just in, the, in that, time period where things have got to settle down a bit, you know, because um, of disruption that the pandemic caused. And do you have a website? And if you do, what can people find there? Yeah, it's www.uriah-heap.com. And my own personal one is www.mick-box.net. And what can people find there? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's a source of... Um, I think nowadays that's where people find, you know, the sorts of information, isn't it, that, that we try and keep it as current as we can and uh, can, and see what we're doing and where we're going. And what can you say about your direction in the future, and are you contemplating anything new? Well, as it was in Heap, you know, we've got an album released now, but we're still writing the next one, so <laughs> that, um, that's a positive, because <laughs> we write every day, so we're always writing songs, so... Um, we're always looking towards you know, another album. Um, obviously, we're we're going to be touring Cows in Colour this year. Um, we've got lots of festivals lined up. Then the, the, the main touring will start um, coming off the back end of the summer. 
um, you know, hopefully we'll get as many countries we can. Because pre-COVID, we used to play in 62 countries. So mm. when we did a world tour, it was like a couple of years going out there and doing it. And uh, we hope we can do that again. Mm. And any last word about chaos and color? Uh, the only last word I can say is have a listen, enjoy it, turn it up, put it on your headphones, put it in your car. <laughs> um, no, don't put, it, don't put it in your car because you might get a speeding ticket. You might get too excited. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, it's, it's a it's a great great rock album, you know, and uh, I just you know, so far so good. Everyone in the media and the fans alike have all loved it. So long may that continue. Mm. Okay, well, thank you so much, Mick Box, for calling into the show, and I will get the word out. Thank you very thanks so much for your support too. And we'll go out now with the Arts Express screening room and the current controversy surrounding that Renaissance masterpiece, Michelangelo's Statue of David, which led to the firing of a Florida school principal for, well, decency, accused of exposing the students to the statue's nude figure, and apparently no less a figure of controversy even back then. To explore all of that is curator James Payne. Michelangelo was the first superstar artist. He was a sculptor, a painter, an architect, a poet, and an engineer. An outsider touched by genius. His statue of David, the most famous statue in the world, personifies the aesthetics of high Renaissance art, the politics of Renaissance Florence, and the technical virtuosity of Greek sculpture. The story of Michelangelo's David is anything but the story of a teenage boy king who slew Goliath. One of his poems, Michelangelo wrote, Son di essere brutto, I know I am ugly. His nose was broken and appeared crushed into his face, which he said gave him the look of a beggar. He was tortured by his appearance and alienated from his own body. Despite, or perhaps because of this, he would spend his life in pursuit of sublime perfection. He could do little about his own looks, but he would make sure his David would be the standard by which male beauty would be judged. Michelangelo believed that he was a tool of God. He wasn't creating a sculpture from marble, he was simply releasing the figure imprisoned within it. Unfinished work by Michelangelo gives us many insights into his techniques. Most sculptors would create a clay model and then mark up their block of marble to know where to chip. But Michelangelo worked mostly freehand starting from the front and working back. To sculpt in marble, you need the strength of an athlete and the dexterity of a surgeon. Any slip-up can destroy years of work. Michelangelo would start by what is called roughing out, taking the bulk of the weight off with a point chisel and a large mallet, for getting it down to the general shape of the sculpture. Then he'd use a tooth chisel and a smaller hammer for more detailed work in modelling the form. As he needed more details, he'd use finer and finer tooth chisels. He would use a drill to get into the deeper crevices. Then he would refine using various smaller tools, followed by finishing the surface with a tool like the rasp, a sort of file. Finally, he would polish the statue using abrasive pumice stones and then leather until it is smooth and glossy. 
If we look at his unfinished work, we can clearly see the sculpture emerging from the stone. The marks we see were made by Michelangelo's own hands. The outer parts show us where Michelangelo started to cut away the stone with a large pick and a mallet. We can clearly see he has used a tooth chisel. Here on the chest, we see even more detail and the marks are fainter where he has used much finer tools. Michelangelo was 26 when he was asked to sculpt a colossal statue of the biblical hero David to be placed on the roof of the cathedral in Florence, 80 metres above street level. Only two years before, he had carved the achingly beautiful Pieta in Rome, and he was already considered a master. He was asked to use an old block of marble already owned by the cathedral that had been sitting around for 50 years. Two other sculptors had attempted to use it, but the marble was flawed and considered too narrow to produce a successful figure. One sculptor had even carved a large hole out between what were to have been the legs of his figure. But where others saw flaws, Michelangelo saw opportunity. Because of the shape of the marble, Michelangelo had to be precise. There was no room for manoeuvre. David had to look to the side as there wasn't enough marble to have him facing forward. David had to be in the contraposto position so that his legs would fit around the large hole already in the marble. And he would have to be slender because of the depth of the marble. The story of David and Goliath is the biblical story of the Philistine giant defeated by the teenage Israelite, armed only with his sling. The finale of the story is David cutting off his head and holding it up to the cheering crowd. Traditionally, David had been portrayed at the point of victory, triumphant over the dead Goliath. Florentine artists like Donatello and Verrocchio depicted their own version of David standing over Goliath's severed head. All statues are more than mere representations, but Michelangelo's take on it would be revolutionary. By removing the conventional attributes of the biblical hero, stripping him down both literally and figuratively, Michelangelo also removes a simplistic reading of it as just an illustration of the story and gives it a wider metaphorical meaning. For the first time in art, David is depicted before the battle rather than the moment of victory. This changes everything. First and foremost, Michelangelo's David depicts rationality. David isn't about to fight Goliath with brute strength, but with skill and reason. David represents the humanist ideal of a man who can become a hero by his intelligence and willpower alone. These are the virtues of the thinking man, considered perfection during the Renaissance. Michelangelo catches him at the peak of his concentration as he contemplates the challenge ahead of him. David is no longer the traditional self-assured boy. Now he is shown as an apprehensive man. David's neck is tense. His thigh muscles are flexed, his nostrils are flared and his brow is furrowed with fear. He is just about to glide easily and naturally into action. He is tense but contemplates the challenge ahead of him with a calculated gaze. The rock is hidden inside his right palm. The slingshot rests on his shoulder and hangs down his back, almost invisible, emphasising that David's victory was intellectual. His chest appears to pulse with anxiety. Like all of Michelangelo's sculptures, the viewer sees David at a specific and pivotal point. It is not meant to be the whole story. David is in motion. The position he is in is known as contraposto, or counterpose. It was invented by the ancient Greeks and is a very natural and human way to stand. The red lines show where his muscles are tensed, and the yellow ones where his muscles are relaxed. Most of the weight is on one leg, with the other leg forward, causing the figure's hips and shoulders to rest at opposing angles, giving a slight S-curve to the entire torso, and therefore giving the statue a more dynamic look. The story of David and Goliath would come to represent the city of Florence itself. During the Renaissance, Italy was a collection of city-states, each with its own ruler. The newly independent Republic of Florence saw itself as the David of Italy, holding out with unexpected strength against the Medicis. 
and the powerful and all-consuming influence of the Pope in Rome. This point was emphasised when David was placed in a secular spot rather than its intended religious one. Commissioned as a statue of the biblical story, in Michelangelo's hands it becomes something else entirely. The proportions of David are not typical of Michelangelo's work. The figure has an unusually large head and hands. But Michelangelo, who had dissected many cadavers, understood the human body better than any physician. As per the commission, the statue was designed to be seen from 80 metres below. In 2010, a fibreglass replica was temporarily placed in the spot originally planned for David, and we can clearly see that the proportions work perfectly when seen from below. Nudity was unusual at the time for a biblical story, but the Renaissance was a decisive time for the nude in Western art. A renewed interest in ancient Greek and Roman art brought the human body to the forefront of artistic innovation during the Renaissance. Achievement in representing the body became the standard for measuring artistic genius. It is far harder to depict a nude figure than a clothed one. It is a myth, though, that Renaissance Europeans were comfortable with nude bodies in art, particularly when displayed in public. In fact, the city fathers had a garland of 28 gilded copper leaves made to protect David's modesty, and in later years he wore a fig leaf. Why is the Jewish hero David not circumcised? Again, we can trace this back to the inspiration for the Renaissance, the ancient Greeks and Romans. They regarded circumcision as barbaric, and there are no depictions of circumcision in ancient statuary. Also, the Catholic Church denounced circumcision in the Middle Ages. The Jewish figure of David has been placed into the Christian context of Florence, a hallmark of the High Renaissance. It has been remarked that David's penis is rather small. This was considered an indication of modesty and respectability, and shows that the biblical figure is in control of his own urges. We can contrast that with contemporary images of satyrs and other figures which represented evil sexuality. David has a slight squint. It is rarely remarked on, but his eyes point in slightly different directions. This is a typical Michelangelo trick to pull us into the eyes of David. The pupils are carved out hollow to capture the changing sunlight, adding to the intensity of the gaze. Michelangelo calculated every angle and always considered the position of the viewer. The details are extraordinary. My own favourite is the jugular vein, which is swollen. This only occurs when people get excited or nervous. Michelangelo understood this over a century before scientists would describe the circulatory system. The veins in the raised left hand are delicate, while the veins in the hanging right hand are pulsing and more well-defined. The way our blood circulates, this is exactly what would happen to our own hands in the same position. Every detail points to Michelangelo's passion for human anatomy. Michelangelo, who never wasted a minute of his life, worked morning, noon and night on David, alone and in total secrecy. At night, he would attach candles to his hat. He rarely ate, and when he did sleep, he slept in his clothes, which he seldom, if ever, changed. In 1504, he finally presented his giant to the cathedral committee. They were astonished at Michelangelo's skills and agreed it was far too perfect to be placed at such a height. They decided to find a better location and eventually decided it should be placed in the political heart of Florence, in Piazza della Signoria, in front of the town hall, where its copy still is today. One member of the committee tried to persuade them to place David in a less prominent place. His name? Leonardo da Vinci. David is truly a colossus. At nearly six metres tall and weighing six tonnes, it took four days and 40 men to move the statue half a mile from Michelangelo's workshop. In a gesture of defiance, David was placed facing south towards Rome. Michelangelo then added the finishing touches on site. Originally, the sling and tree stump support were gilded with gold, as seen in these reconstructions. David received a rapturous reception from the Florentines, and right from the start it was hailed as a masterpiece and a symbol of the Republic.
The Italian 16th century historian Giorgio Vasari wrote, After seeing this, no one need wish to look at any other sculpture or the work of any other artist. In 1873, David was moved to the Academia Gallery to protect it from environmental damage. And in 1910, a full-size copy was placed in the square. His fig leaf was eventually removed and David could be seen as Michelangelo intended. Statues have power beyond their initial reading. One man's hero is another man's symbol of oppression. Michelangelo's David has had its fair share of controversies, but has always been on the side of the oppressed, the underdog. David represents the power to overcome adversity in the face of insurmountable odds, and we can all relate to that. Michelangelo would go on to create many masterpieces, but his miraculous transformation of a shepherd boy into the physical embodiment of Florence would prove to be a defining moment in his artistic career. He was an alchemist who turned marble into flesh and bone and brought a psychological insight and physical realism to sculpture never seen before. He died in Rome in February of 1564, still working at the age of 88 years old, having outlived both his arch rivals, Leonardo da Vinci and Raphael. He was brought back to Florence to be buried in Santa Croce Church, just a stone's throw away from his divine David. And thank you, Great Art Explained, for that presentation. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.